Uh, Joe and his family are in PEI this morning preaching at uh, Christ Central Charlottetown so we can be in prayer for them. They've been over since Friday uh, just meeting with Andrew and Janet and the team over there uh, to encourage them along. And so yeah, it's good to be back. We're here for a week and then next Sunday we all head out to Green Hill Lake Camp and I'm the camp pastor there for the week of the 23rd and so we'd appreciate your prayers uh, for that as well. So, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. We've been in the book of 2 Corinthians for a while, and uh, we're beginning chapter 4 this morning. Two weeks ago, uh, we finished chapter 3, and so we'll begin to dive into chapter 4. It's a short dive because we're just going to look at the first, the first verse of chapter 4. We're just going to look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse one, but as we start verse or chapter four, Second Corinthians four and five are some of my uh, most favorite uh, chapters in the whole Bible. If you remember back when we did like the uh, the intro to two Second Corinthians, I talked about how Second Corinthians is like a mine, and there's lots of diamonds in there, lots of verses that you come across, and you're just like, Oof, you're just blown away by. The impact of them. A lot of those diamonds that I read that morning uh, are from chapters 4 and 5. So I'm excited to start to get into chapters 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians. And, uh, and so let's jump in. I'll pray and then we'll, uh, we'll look at God's Word together. So Father, we are so thankful for your presence here with us. We thank you that you meet with us in worship as we lift your name high. Uh, so Wonderful to hear the contributions that were brought, just reminding us of truth and, uh, and Nancy's word, just reminding us that we persevere in our following of you and in our pressing in to you, and uh, you're a God who uh, rewards those who seek you, not with material things, but with the beauty of your presence. And so we just thank you for that, Father, and we pray now as we come to your word, uh, that your spirit would meet with us. I pray that you would open our eyes so that we can behold the wonderful things contained in your word, that this morning it would be like honey to our lips, that it would revive our soul. We just pray, Father, as we come to your word, that you would revive us, that you would revive our souls, that you'd revive our spirits, uh, our hearts in following you. We'd just be encouraged and you'd lift our heads this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, when we consider where we are as a church on the whole, where we are in the midst of transition, where we are in the midst of venue change, uh, where we are in the midst of some, uh, some concerning pastoral issues, uh, I found it very encouraging as I opened God's Word to look at what to preach this week. And we look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so my plan was to preach on that paragraph of 1 to 6, but in just settling in verse 1, I just couldn't get past that sentence from Paul, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And I felt that was sufficient for this morning, and we can look at the other verses uh, next time I'm up. 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so I want to talk to you this morning about dealing with discouragement. And if you were here last week, I hope this really complements what Gary spoke on last week from Deuteronomy 31 about being strong and courageous. And now Paul is coming in and saying, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. When Paul says we do not lose heart, he's saying, therefore, we do not get discouraged. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not get discouraged. It's a bit like a a rallying cry to the troops here. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, Paul is like Aragorn going up in front up and down in front of the the front lines, and he's saying there may come a day when the strength of men may fail and we break off all bonds of fellowship, but it's not this day, right? It's like the rallying cry. He's saying, therefore, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, right? Do you see that? It's like a rallying cry to the church from Paul. He's like the good general here rallying the troops. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not grow discouraged. We all battle discouragement from time to time. We live in a broken world, and so even when things are going well, it doesn't take very long for something to come unexpected that comes that we felt was going to go a different way, and it kind of bumps us, and we experience discouragement. Discouragement is literally a removal of courage. So when Gary's reading Deuteronomy 31 last week, be strong and courageous. Discouragement, discourage, is a removal of courage. And so in that sense, discouragement is its own brand of fear. And it's a fear that because of this disappointment or this setback that we've endured, that God is not faithful, that his promises do not stand, that he isn't indeed for us. And so when that hope begins to leak out, then it makes space for discouragement to settle in. Discouragement is uh, a fear that sets in our heart. Discourage. And that hope of God's promises for us, His presence with us, when that leaks out, then discouragement settles in our hearts. Discouragement can come to us through a number of avenues and in the area of ministry, in the area of serving others and seeking to see Christ formed in others, we can be particularly vulnerable to discouragement. We are called to, in the Christian life, we're called to love each other, we're called to open ourselves up to each other, to give of ourselves. Whenever you do that, whenever you love much like that, then you open yourself up to be discouraged much as well. And Jesus said that in this world we will have troubles, but to take heart that that he has overcome the world. So if Jesus commands us to take heart, then he's anticipating that on the road of following him, we're going to encounter things that are going to tempt us to lose heart, right? If Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And if he says, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also 
in me, then he's anticipating that when you choose to follow him, you are going to experience things that are going to cause your heart to be troubled. And so when we follow him, we have opportunity to be discouraged. And on top of discouragement we experience in church life and in ministry, it could just be compounded when we have our own things uh, to deal with, our own personal discouragements, our only own family hardships as well. So we can experience discouragement from a number of ways, from feeling of not living up to expectations that are placed on us, from accusations against us. Maybe we've been serving others and talking to them about Jesus, and there just seems to be this indifference on their part, not only on the investment that you've made in their life, but a greater discouragement and indifference and an apathy towards the gospel itself. Maybe it's a sense of working in vain, of fruitlessness. I've been serving and serving and serving, and I'm just not seeing any impact. I've been serving at street level for years and years and years and years, and I haven't seen anyone come to know Jesus. I've been working in kids' church for years and years, and it just seems like the lesson goes in one ear and out the other. Is my work all in vain? Is it just fruitless? Am I working for nothing? And a sense of fruitlessness can be a great source of discouragement in our lives. On top of that, we need to recognize our own kind of makeup and our own character. Some of us just have more of a tendency to be discouraged. Some people are very good at pressing forward with joy and kind of undaunted by things around them, but others, myself included, kind of tend to be more of a glass half empty, throw the baby out with the bathwater type of personality. Uh, when I was in high school, I, one saying I was known for was, this is tricky, I quit, uh, which we're just thankful that we're almost 20 years removed from that, and I have a good wife that helps me to see the positive side of things, and I have the Holy Spirit working change in my heart, but some of us have that, that tendency. Some of you have that tendency to be more discouraged more quickly than others. And so we just need, we need to recognize that. Some of us have that lean towards being discouraged and throwing in the towel. But we all sometimes just want to lose heart when we feel that God's pointed us in a certain direction and given you a vision for how things will go and things turn out differently, then discouragement starts to set in. And an antidote is needed. The fear that God is not with us, that he's not for us, his promises do not stand, it begins to grow. And as we cower to that fear, then that gray fog of discouragement begins to set in. And discouragement is kind of like a sickness. And like with any physical sickness, it needs to be fought against. It needs a cure. It needs an antidote. It affects our energy levels. It affects the emotions of our heart, our outlook on things. And so we need to do something. So what do we do? What do we do when that discouragement sets in? Well, there are two ways that people deal wrongly with discouragement. So we'll look at those and then we'll look at 
at what Paul shows us here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. So discouragement needs to be fought. It needs to be treated. And generally, people attempt to deal with discouragement in one of two ways. So some people experience discouragement and they just keep on ministering. They keep on going and serving and doing the whole time, ignoring the issue, ignoring the sickness. But ministering may not even be an appropriate word for what they're doing because uh, you can try to bury discouragement, but when you bury discouragement, you never bury discouragement dead. You always bury discouragement alive. And it sits in you and it kind of festers and boils and really spreads its toxicity to the heart. It becomes like a gangrene in our soul. And left unchecked, discouragement very quickly becomes a terminal illness in our heart. It kills our trust in God. It kills our love for others. It kills our joy in our service. And our lives can become consumed with bitterness towards God, anger at anything that moves, murmuring, impatience, and self-pity. And we might do more and more for Jesus, but our love for Jesus dwindles and dwindles. And the more we do, the more bitter we become. When I was a young boy, when I was around 10, my, my grandfather, my mom's father, Grampy Young, he got a little piece of, I don't know, I'm not a medical person, but I'll say a little spot of gangrene on his toe. And being a stubborn guy that he was, he didn't go see a doctor. He just let it and let it alone. He buried it, as you say, and didn't, uh, didn't deal with it. And after a while... Uh, he was forced to go to the hospital, and he was forced to have his leg amputated. And at the age that he was at and the health issues that he had, he was not able to recover from that amputation. And so as a 10-year-old boy, my grandfather kind of had this mystique around him. He had like the brush top, the flat top haircut, right, and the thick brim glasses that are, are popular again. If he could have hung on for another 20 years, he would have been cool. Um, but he lived in the house tinier than any house you could imagine by himself, and he always just sat there in a chair. He had about seven fingers total because he ran his own sawmill, and he just sat in that chair, and he was missing this finger, and he'd sit like this, and he had always had a, a tin of planter's peanuts beside his chair and so going to see him as a eight and nine year old boy it was just he was just like an out of this world character and when my parents told me about about they kind of kept us updated on what was going on with Grampy and then and then when he passed you were just kind of filled with this feeling of why didn't you just get checked out Grampy why did you just ignore it why not care for yourself and care for the family that you have to not get yourself cured. Why just let the gangrene grow? And so as a 10-year-old boy, you were kind of filled with this, this sorrow and kind of this confusion, I guess, of why didn't you care that it was killing you, Grampy? 
And so when we see people in that same situation, burying their discouragement and growing bitter and just having that murmuring and that toxicity in their heart festering like that gangrene and it's killing their trust in God and it's killing their love for others and it's killing their joy in serving, then as your pastor, my heart is the same way. Why don't you care for yourself? Your family needs you. Your family needs you. Don't bury it anymore. Get the help that you need. There's people that love you, and your church family needs you. So don't bury the discouragement. Deal with the discouragement. Others respond to discouragement differently. And instead of ignoring the sickness, we'll say they write their own prescriptions. They write their own prescriptions. They look to uh, numb their souls with sex, alcohol, work, endless hours of entertainment, food, and a hundred other self-indulgences. Anything to try to numb the pain and gain some comfort. And so if you can imagine for a minute a world where people are able to diagnose themselves and write their own prescriptions for what they think would be helpful for their physical illness, if you can imagine a world like that, it would be chaos, right? If you think of the pain that it would cause, far from being a healthier world, it would be a world of a lot more pain and hurt and agony. It would only cause more sickness and pain. But that's just what we do when we try to ease our discouragement by writing our own prescriptions and fulfilling our own selfish desires. So often that's where we head. And then in a startling turn, we look to justify it all by pointing to how poorly we've been treated. Maybe you've seen that in your own heart. I've seen it in my own. I deserve better than what my spouse did to me or what the church gave me or better than how God treated me. So I'm not really to blame for seeking comfort in these things because really it's all their fault. Right? Maybe you've heard your heart say those things as you look to write your own prescriptions. Yeah, I might have done there and gone there and I might have done that, but is it really my fault? Look at how poorly they've been treating me. Look at the bad hand that I've been dealt. So is that where you're at this morning? And what disappointment are you carrying that has driven you to seek comfort in fulfilling your own selfish desires? And maybe some of you this morning have been playing doctor and writing your own prescriptions trying to find comfort from your discouragement in lesser things. And so if that's you, you need to hear me this morning that you will not find hope that you're looking for in another drink. You won't find the comfort you're looking for in another plate of food. You won't find hope by binge watching another series on Netflix. You will not remedy your discouragement by doing another private search on your computer. You will not find it in another paycheck loaded 
with overtime. You won't find it in another scratch ticket. You won't find it if you upgrade your character to level 80 and solve all the puzzles and crush all the jewels and complete all the missions. You will not find the encouragement that you're looking for. You will not find the remedy for the discouragement that settled in to your heart. So we cannot write our own prescriptions. In the end, you'll just be more miserable than when you began. There has to be a better way. There has to be an antidote. And thankfully, Paul points us to what we need to deal with the discouragement and all the things that all the things of this world seem powerless against. Paul shows us where to look to. And when we look at Paul's life and his ministry, he seems to be the perfect candidate to rationalize sin or to take on kind of a victim mentality. Because when you look at all that he endured, it's shipwrecks and it's beatings and it's imprisonments and it's this and that. He went through a lot more stuff than you and I went through. He seems to be the perfect candidate to be discouraged and to just take on that well, it's not my fault and I'm just going to write my own prescriptions or to take on kind of a victim mentality. If anyone had reason to be discouraged, it would to be discouraged, it would be Paul, let alone all the stuff we've looked at at 2 Corinthians, kind of all that relational, emotional tension that he's been enduring with the church that kind of turned their back on him. So it's first important for us to see that Paul isn't coming from some lofty position here. This is real for Paul. This is real stuff. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, flip back to chapter 1, verse 8, there's that verse where Paul says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So he'd experienced affliction. He despaired of life itself. He was utterly burdened beyond his strength. He had felt in his heart that he had received a sentence of death. So discouragement is not only a temptation for Paul, but it's also a tendency for Paul. This is where he's at in his life and in his ministry. He's saying, I'm burdened beyond my strength. I'm despairing of life itself. So when he says then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we do not lose heart, he's preaching to us, but he's preaching to his own soul as well. We are determining right here, right now, no matter what the circumstances might be, we will not lose heart. That's what he's coming in with in chapter 4. He's going to end with the same message when we get to the end of chapter 4 as well. We do not lose heart. That's why I said it's like a rallying cry to the troops. He's saying, come on, look at all the stuff I've gone through. I've got reason to be discouraged. You're going through things right here, right now. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart hope. And so we need to see and hear the authenticity in Paul's voice here. 
But when we hear Paul say we do not lose heart, some of us might be able to, might be tempted to say, well, easy for you to say, Paul, you had kind of this, you know, supernatural encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. You had some weird thing where you said you were taken up into the third heaven. You've been gifted beyond belief. You've been put in a position, a very unique, privileged position in the life of the church. Easy for you to say, we do not lose heart. Look at all the ways that God has blessed you. But it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't use any of those things to give us reason to not lose heart. That's not what Paul's pointing to. He doesn't say we do not lose heart because we've had a visible encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. Right? He doesn't say we do not lose heart because we've all been taken up into the third heaven. That's not what he points to. Look again at verse 1, and Paul gives us two reasons for not losing heart. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so we do not lose heart because of this ministry that is ours and because of the mercy of God in our lives. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So first, Paul reminds us that we've been entrusted with this ministry. And so this ministry that Paul is speaking of is the new covenant ministry that he unpacked in chapter 3. He broke it down back in chapter 3 about what this ministry is, this new covenant ministry of grace and righteousness in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what sustained Paul in the midst of hardship and disappointment. This new covenant ministry brought to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which God wrote His law on our hearts. He provided us with unconditional forgiveness for our sins. He gave us unbroken fellowship with Himself. He gave us the enablement of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That is what kept Paul going. And the fact that the message he proclaimed was a message of grace, a message of righteousness, a message of the abiding presence of God's Spirit enabled Paul to continue going in what God had called him. If the message he was pro proclaiming was a message of external conduct, if it was a message of rules without empowerment to fulfill them, if it was just a message of human effort, a message devoid of the presence of God, it would have been doubtful that he could have carried on. But Paul first recognized that he was a minister of good news. He was a minister of good news. So when we read this, we need to ask ourselves if we, if we see clearly and fully the ministry that we've been called to. Do we see clearly the ministry that we've been called to? Do we see our ministry as this ministry that Paul is speaking of? Do we see that we carry a message of grace and righteousness and the presence of the Holy Spirit? And so do we see just how life-changing, eternity-altering, soul-satisfying the message of the gospel is? It's hard when we grow up in church or if you've been a Christian for a number of years, we're so easily calloused to how beautiful the gospel 
is. And we need to ask God to give us new eyes again to see just how beautiful this ministry is. So that when our evangelism attempts fall on deaf ears, when those we love walk away from the faith, when our kids seem indifferent, when we're ridiculed, when it seems like all our work is in vain, we do not lose heart because we know that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. That Jesus alone can satisfy the weary heart. That Jesus alone can bring peace in the midst of war. That Jesus alone can provide hope when there's despair. That Jesus alone provides us with the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not lose heart because we recognize the ministry that we are called in is this ministry that Paul was called to as well. A ministry of grace and righteousness and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul shows us here that his calling as a minister of the new covenant, as a carrier of the gospel, more than compensated for any trials that he faced. Paul is so jacked up that he's a minister of the new covenant that no matter what comes at him, shipwreck, uh, trials, beatings, whatever it might be, discouragement on every front, but he's just like, I'm a minister of the new covenant. And that more than compensates for anything that he endured. Do we see what we're called to in that same light? Do we see the privilege that we have of being ministers of this new covenant, of being carriers of the good news? So that when our kids just give us hardship and discouragement, do we see the privilege, moms and dads, that we get to be ministers of a new covenant to our children? Do we see the great privilege that that is, that we get to impart the good news of Jesus Christ to these children that God has put in our care? We get to be messengers of good news. When a pastor at a small rural church in Scotland wrote to the famous Scottish preacher Alexander White after years of fruitlessness, and he asked him, should I, should I give up? Should I be done doing what I'm doing? Alexander White wrote back and said, never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the very throne of God envy your great work. This is a guy who had preached for years with little fruit. And Alexander White said, do not think about giving up preaching. Do not lose heart. The very angels around the throne of God envy your great work. We get to be ministers of a new covenant. Do we see our life and our ministry that way? Paul gives us another reason to not lose heart. And he specifically wants us to see that we not only carry the message of the new covenant, but that we're participants in it by the mercy of God. We not only carry the message of the new covenant, but we're participants in it by God's mercy. So Paul gained courage and hope to keep going by reflecting not just on the nature of the new covenant, but also recognized that he was a participant in it only by God's sovereign kindness, compassion, and mercy. He recognized that his conversion, his calling as an apostle, and his competency were all from the mercy of God. He points us to the Lord, the Lord, merciful 
and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. He wants us to see that jaw-dropping truth that we are, that you and I are objects of divine mercy. That we are objects of divine mercy. We didn't earn our way in. We didn't exhibit special abilities. We didn't show a lot of potential. The bottom line is that you and I deserve death, but because of the mercy of God displayed through Jesus Christ have received eternal life. And even beyond that, not only was our salvation an act of mercy on God's part, but all that we have, all that we are, are all that we've accomplished is the result of God's mercy as well. Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so when we see our merit instead of God's mercy as the basis for our lives and our ministry, there is very little to keep us from becoming discouraged when hardship comes our way. When we take a view of our salvation and our ministry and our life as a reward from God for our good work to God, instead of seeing it as a gift as flowing out of the result of God's mercy towards us, then there's very little to keep us from becoming discouraged when hardship comes our way. And so we need to see this morning that the remedy for our discouragement is mercy. Earlier, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.7, just listen to what he says carefully. 1 Corinthians 4.7, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have this morning that you have not received from a merciful God? What do you have this morning that you have not received from God? When we see our lives as a reward, then when things don't go as planned, when we're treated harshly or when we encounter hardship, then we're quick to complain, we're quick to grow bitter, and we're quick to become discouraged. But when we see the whole of our lives as a gift from God, out of His abundant kindness and compassion and mercy, then our whole outlook is transformed because then we can't take credit for our achievements and we can't murmur against any hardship that we might face. Everything is kind of flipped around. And so often on Facebook, when somebody posts about some you know, new job or new opportunity or some great thing in their life, guaranteed underneath one of the comments will be, so excited, you deserve it. And I don't want to be a stick in the mud or anything, but the Bible tells us that we don't deserve it. That the only thing we deserve was judgment and death and separation from God because of our sin. But we've received abundant mercy from Him, even though we did not deserve it. And so we need to realize that whatever benefits or blessings we experience, they are not the payment of a debt that we put God in by our good work, but they always and only come to us out of the abundance 
of his mercy. What do you have this morning that you have not received? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When we take that attitude, it's very easy to boast about the things that we receive, but on the flip side of it, it's very easy to become very bitter when we don't receive the things that we think we should have received, that we think we deserve. So mercy becomes the antidote not only to our boasting, but also to our bitterness. And I so appreciate John's word this morning about the boat in the canal. Because maybe if I can take some liberties with John's picture, maybe this morning you've been looking out the windows of that boat and all you see is the sand, and that can be very discouraging. We need to recognize that we're actually on the river of that new covenant ministry of the presence of the Spirit and the grace of God in our lives. And we need to recognize that we're not the ones driving the boat we're passengers on this boat called mercy, and we've been put there because of God's favorable kindness towards us. And that transforms our view of that desert that's out there. So Paul saw his ministry as completely and fully coming by the mercy of God. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we see our lives with the same terms that Paul saw his? Do we see our ministry in the same way that Paul saw his? What about our family? What about our marriage? What about our health? What about our finances, our career, your position or your gifting within the church? Can you look at the whole of your life and say, it is all by the mercy of God? It is all by the mercy of God. So if you're discouraged this morning about something that has come into your life, Paul is inviting us to reflect deeply on the fact of what has not come into our life. On what didn't come, even though we deserved it, but has been taken from us because of Jesus. Eternal separation from Him We've been brought in because of God's mercy, not because of anything that we've done. We've been brought into this new covenant ministry where we enjoy the presence of God through His Holy Spirit, where we get to enjoy and revel in God's grace in our lives and the forgiveness of our sins. It's all by the mercy of God. And so for the discouraged soul this morning, mercy is your medicine. Mercy is your medicine. We don't need to bury it. We don't need to ignore it. We don't need to write our own prescriptions and try to go here and there to find a cure and an antidote, try to numb the pain. We reflect and enjoy and grab hold of the mercy of God in our lives. When faced with troubling things that make us want to lose heart, one author put it this way, time spent stewing on things, wallowing or getting angry is better spent taking hold of some truth and going into battle with it. Jesus took hold of my life for a reason, so I'm going to grab on, press on, 
keep going with strength from him, trusting in his faithfulness, even for the situations that I find hard to deal with and understand. If that sounds familiar to you, that was Emma Bicknell's blog this week. And I found it very encouraging reading that. Time spent stewing on things, wallowing or getting angry, is better spent taking hold of some truth. So if you're wallowing this morning in discouragement, then take Emma's advice and grab hold of some truth of God's mercy in your life. Take hold of some truth that you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Take hold of truth that you have a hope and a future, and it's all been bought for you, not with your merit, but by God's mercy displayed through Jesus on the cross. So as a church, we don't need to sugarcoat it. There's some hard things that we're going through as a church. There's some big picture things about vision and future and venues and here we are at the Capitol Winter Club and all these things and where are we headed as a church. Those are difficult things and it can very easily let discouragement begin to seep in, right? We've got some pastoral things, very easy to let discouragement seep in. But as a church... Let's not bury it. Let's not keep just serving, serving, serving the whole time. Our hearts just get colder and colder and colder and we become a church that's just devoid of love. It's just absent of joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we become a church that's legalistic, that ignores the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's not ignore it. At the same time, let's not run and try to write our own prescriptions. Let's not just throw off the chains and, and race for our own freedom and our own happiness apart from Jesus Christ. Instead, let's all the more set our face on this new covenant ministry that we've been put in. Let's all the more seek to enjoy the grace of God. Let's all the more seek the presence of the Holy Spirit. And let's all the more speak mercy to our souls so that we do not lose heart. Therefore, Christ Central Church, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And whatever you're going through on a personal front, on a family front, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. If you're tempted this morning to throw in the towel and you just think, all this stuff I got going on, I can never teach another kids' church lesson. I'm done serving at street level. I'm done doing this. I'm done talking to my coworker about Jesus. I'm done. I'm done doing daily devotions with my kids. I just can't do it anymore. There's no point. It's all been in vain. Do not lose heart this morning. Do not lose heart. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Your work is not in vain. Let's pray.
God, we just confess to you that so often we're tempted to lose heart in our pursuit of you, in our discipleship of you. We're so tempted to throw in the towel. We're so tempted to just hang it up. And we just want to confess to you this morning the many times that we've just buried our discouragement and we've grown bitter towards you. We've let self-pity and murmuring rise up in our hearts. We want to confess to you this morning the many times that we've written our own prescriptions and we ran after the things that the world offers, seeking our comfort and seeking a pick-me-up from the discouragement that we faced. And we just say this morning, we ask that you would come again by your great mercy, that you'd once again remind us of our great salvation, that you'd remind us just how merciful you are towards us, that you would open our eyes so that we could see the depth of your mercy towards us. And then we could sing of your love forever, Father. We could sing of your love forever for us. We're so thankful that it's not based on what we've done. It's not based on our merit. It's not even based on our prospect of what we will be able to do for you. It's based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ and on your mercy towards us. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to your children. We're so thankful for the privilege that we have, that we're not bound up in a legalistic system. We're not bound up in an external code of contact, conduct that's devoid of your spirit, but we have the spirit of the living God in us. We pray that you would once again help us to see the great privilege that we have of being in this new covenant with you, the great privilege that we have of being able to be carriers of this message to a world that's hurting and such need of encouragement that can only come from you. And so we just pray, Father, as a church, that you would give us new eyes again to see these truths, that you would fill us with your Spirit, and we do not want to lose heart in our following after you. We do not want to lose heart in what you've called us to as a church. We do not want to lose heart in our love for this city. We do not want to lose heart in our joy of serving our children and seeing the next generation put their hope in you. We do not want to lose heart in our vision for planting churches in the Maritimes. We do not want to lose heart in our vision for the ends of the earth. We do not want to lose heart in seeing your glory spread across this world so that everyone could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't want to lose heart in our serving at street level and in the uh, poor areas of this city. We don't want to lose heart in our efforts towards kids club and seeing that begin. We don't want to lose heart in the preaching of your word. We don't want to lose heart in our worshiping of you in songs that are full of beauty and truth and love and passion for you. We don't want to lose heart in these things for that, the things that you've called us to as a church. And so we pray, Father, fill us again with your spirit so that we can go on in love for you, in love for this city, in love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.